and turn to John chapter 17. Hey, believe it or not, we've moved on to the next chapter. But uh, we're going to camp out here for a while. John 17 is the Lord's high priestly prayer. It's a tremendous prayer prayed by our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, we're going to be looking at it tonight kind of as a overview, kind of as an introduction. Um, the Lord's high priestly prayer. And I've often taken great comfort in the demands of life and ministry at the knowledge that I have people praying for me. I think it was uh, March of 2016 when my wife and I visited our home state of Kansas and we were in the services at Wheatland Baptist Church. Now, that's a tremendous name for a Kansas church, right? Wheatland. And we were privileged to serve there for three and a half years as an associate pastor. Um, I, the thing that I remember about this particular visit was a man who was in the church at the time that I was there. And he was, uh, I think, one of the deacons. But he told me that morning in March 2016, he had been praying for me every day since I had left the church. Now, we left that church to go and pastor a church in Indiana for nine years, and then we've been here uh, for a number of years. And so he said he'd been praying for me every day since. Well, that was encouraging. Uh, it seems that in some of my most pressing times, the Lord will send along someone to let me know that they're praying on my behalf. And as wonderful as that is, there is something even more profound and consoling right here in our text in John chapter 17. It's that God's own Son prays for you and me. Jesus, the Son of God, is praying for you and me. And here we have his great prayer in John 17. Someone has written, There is no voice which has, has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime, than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. When Jesus prayed, we can be assured he prayed perfectly in the will of the Father. And it was perfectly answered. And for every believer, for everyone who has come to faith in Christ, Jesus Christ himself has prayed for you. Now that should kind of set us back a little bit to think that he's prayed for me. That he's prayed for you. Jesus Christ was within his <clears throat> hours of facing the agony of the cross when he prayed. And what is without doubt the most magnificent prayer that, was, that has ever been prayed or uttered. He had left his disciples and those who would follow. He left them with instructions, with assurances, with promises. We talked about the provisions for the times of temptation and trial this morning in our morning message. And he assured them that now, in the act of his suffering and passion, is the Son of Man glorified. That comes from John 13, verse 31. Now is the Son of Man glorified. He promised the disciples that he would be preparing a dwelling place for them in heaven. That's in John 14, 1 through 3. And that in him they had beheld the Father. 
John 14, 8 through 11. Uh, he had given them assurance of answered prayer in his name. John 14, verse 13 and 14. And the promise of the Holy Spirit coming to indwell all believers. And a number of, of passages there in verse uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16. Uh, and then he had explained to them the unique relationship that every believer has as a branch with the vine. The relationship of the branch and the vine. He had uh, he explained that in, in um, uh, chapter 15. And the richness of abiding in Christ. He had explained to them that the believers are not of the world, but would face hatred by the world. In spite of which we are to be characterized by love for one another. John fifteen seventeen through 25. And he encourages the disciples that their sorrow would be turned into joy, seeing the work of Christ accomplished for them, and they would be able to continue with that in that joy as they ask in Jesus' name. We saw that in chapter 16, and then this morning we saw the assurance that his disciples would face tribulation in the world, but they would have peace that could not be taken away from them because he has overcome the world. No, sometime between this upper room discourse and Gethsemane, Jesus Christ offers this high priestly prayer. It was an audible prayer and certainly gave the disciples a fresh courage for the days ahead. Now, as Jesus prayed to the Father, we find him praying about the profound work he had accomplished, affirming the sufficiency of his atoning death and the interceding for the, his people in living out their relationship in him. And so the high priestly prayer is a prayer that teaches us about prayer itself, about our great redeemer, about the manifold uh, aspects of our salvation. And so we're going to give our minds this evening to just kind of an overview, and then we're going to come back and take it verse by verse, okay? And so we need to be prepared for the next number of weeks it could be as many as 10, 11, 12 weeks. You say, I'll be growing old by the time you get done with John 17. And there's still some more chapters left there. Well, it's this important. And there's this much richness. And I don't think we'll cover it all. But notice, first of all, it's a unique prayer. It's a unique prayer. Most everyone prays. Unfortunately, much prayer is offered to false gods or to unscriptural caricatures of God. You know, a lot of people will pray. And a lot of people will say they're praying. Some people pray with eloquence, some with stammering tongues, some with vain repetition. Others pray with lofty language. Like the student in Spurgeon's Pastors College who prayed, Oh, thou... That art incensured with the auriferous zodiac. He was more interested in being heard by men than God. Now others will pray to themselves. And rising above all this, we find the prayer of Jesus Christ to his heavenly Father. It's unlike any prayer that's ever been prayed by human lips, and indeed a unique prayer. Why is it unique? First of all, because of its divine author. Because of its divine author. 
Verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may glorify thee. Now, all of us pray and we need prayer. We pray out of our weaknesses. We pray because of a desperate need for God. We pray often out of ignorance of the will of God. And we're searching and we're pleading to know the perfect will of God. But Jesus Christ is God himself. And we see that John records here, these words spake Jesus. And so he was praying to the Father. The incarnate God who spoke and the worlds were created. Who holds the universe together by his own exercise of power. Who receives worship of the angels. He prayed to the Father. Six times in this chapter, Jesus calls the name Father. It's been said concerning Jesus calling God his Father. God is his Father in the sense that he is the Father in the blessed trinity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. God is his father in the sense that Jesus has now become a man and so looking to God as his father. God is his father because he the son is representative of many brethren who have come to be saved and for whom he came to die. And he was born of many, many brethren. He was the firstborn of many, many brethren. So God the father in that sense in the relationship of the children to God, their heavenly father. Now we're taught in the so-called Lord's Prayer, to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. Now there's a difference between this prayer and the one termed as the Lord's Prayer. You find it in Matthew and Luke. Uh, The Lord's Prayer is a model. It's a pattern for prayer, including petitions concerning our sinfulnesses, our uh, sinfulness and our weaknesses. The high priestly prayer is an actual prayer of Jesus Christ offered as the mediator between God and men. And we call God our Father because of the reconciling work Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Jesus called God Father because he is the only begotten of the Father, according to John 1.14. God's unique Son, who is without beginning of days and in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 1.19. So this prayer reveals communication in the Godhead, the Son and the Father. And Jesus appealed to the fathers based upon his personal righteousness, which none of us dare attempt. Uh, We must pray through the Lord Jesus Christ by those uh, by whose standing we have access. We pray in Christ's name and his authority. The writer of Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 10 and chapter 5. Uh, he talks about Jesus was heard because of his piety or his, his, uh, his character as he offered up prayers and supplications. In any of us, prayer, uh, if any of us pray the content of this verse, then it would be vain attempt to, to bargain with God. We can't pray this prayer. Only the Lord Jesus could pray this, this prayer. 
He could ask the Father to restore the glory that he laid aside in the incarnation because his essential being is full of glory or the radiance of divine character. This is only a prayer that the Lord Jesus could pray. And so it's a unique prayer because of its divine author. Secondly, because of its mediatory nature. This is chiefly a prayer of our great high priest mediating for us with the Father. Uh, The first five verses express our Lord's personal intercessions as he prepared for the cross. And the act of dying on behalf of sinners is the work of mediation. And by this I mean that Jesus has gone between God and man to bring about a reconciliation. A mediator acts between parties who cannot, for some reason, act with each other directly. And Jesus had to mediate for humanity because men are sinners. He had to mediate on behalf of the Godhead because of all the moral attributes of God's nature. His truth, pledged to punish sin, his justice, righteously and necessarily bound to requite it, His goodness, concerned in the wholesome order of his kingdom. His holiness, essentially repulsive of sinners. And so his mediatorial role includes his work as prophet. As a prophet, he announces the good news. As a priest, he became the good news. Uh, through his vicarious sacrifice. And as king, he applies the good news through his reign as Lord over those whom he has reconciled to the Father. Now, I mentioned the book of Hebrews. Let's turn there again or for a moment. Hold your place here in John 17, but turn to Hebrews chapter 7. The writer of Hebrews states this mediatorial work well in chapters 7 through 10. I will not read this whole section, but uh, notice in chapter 7 of Hebrews and verses 26 and 27. We find here it says, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests who offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the sins for his uh, for the peoples. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Now turn over to chapter 9. Look at verse 13. Chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and ashes of the heifer uh, sprinkled the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now, we cannot pray this prayer for ourselves as we can the model prayer that's often called the Lord's Prayer. But you know what? We can intercede for others in prayer. God has given us that opportunity, that ability, but we cannot mediate between God and man. I can't go to God for you and mediate for you. I can go to God for you, pray for you. You see, we don't have the qualifications 
for mediation. We don't have the qualifications of deity, of perfect humanity, as our Lord did, which were necessary as a mediator. Now, we have elements for which we can pray. We have sanctification. We have unity. We have love. Simply because prayer is... Uh, the prayer that uh, we were talking about uh, in the Lord's Prayer is a teaching us to pray. But we can only pray from a position of weakness and of great need. This prayer was uttered out of the bosom of the perfection, with a capital P, perfection and great strength of our Mediator. It was a preparation for the cross and all the work of the cross, the work that the cross would accomplish. And so then, thirdly, uh, this is a, a, a great prayer because of the climactic purpose. This prayer precedes Christ going back to the Father. It is an anticipation of a return to the full measure of his glory after he completed his obedience to the Father at the cross. Remember back in verse, or notice in verse 11, I should say, and now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Now that's resounding. Because the hour had come. Remember, all the way through the Gospel of John, we've heard Jesus say, My, the hour has not come yet. It's not time for me. Now's the time, though. The time has come, and it points to the purpose of Jesus coming to earth, the path he must take before returning to the glory at the right hand of the Father. Now, our Lord prays for the disciples who will carry the Gospel to the world. They face an unbelievable task. Twelve men, minus one, carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. These were not the elite of Israel. Uh, People didn't necessarily look up to these poor fishermen. But they were just common men who had experienced an uncommon grace. They would carry out their task because Christ had mediated for them. Saints of God have marched through the ages because their Lord has prayed for them. Throughout the past 2,000 or so years, there have been numerous times when it seemed like true Christianity was going under. It was going to be wiped out. And there were great attempts to wipe it out. And there are still attempts to wipe it out today. And believers have faced persecution from without, corruption from within. Emperors have tried to eradicate them. Devils have tried to smother them. But the saints keep marching on. Now, that's because Jesus Christ has prayed for his own. And his prayers will be fulfilled. So it's a unique prayer because of its divine author, because of its mediatorial nature, because of its climactic purpose. Notice, secondly, it's a specific prayer. The high priestly prayer can be divided into three parts. And I'll point these out to you just simply for consideration as you read, as you meditate upon this text. Notice, first of all, Christ intercedes for himself. We see this in verses 1 through 5. He intercedes for himself. We read 
of numerous times when Jesus would get alone and pray. And this seems to be a constant pattern you find in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And only on occasion did uh, the biblical writers tell us what Jesus prayed. But here we have Jesus praying for himself as he prepared to return to his pre-incarnate glory. And he says, Oh now, O Father, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So Jesus really is identifying his eternality here as one who existed before the world was created. And Paul explained what transpired in eternity in, to the, um, in, into time. He did that in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not to robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And uh, when his work of the cross was completed, and our Lord was raised from the dead, what he prayed in this verse was accomplished. You go on in, in, in Philippians 2 and verse 9, it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow of things on heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then later John will express it in Revelation chapter 5, verse 13, Unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Jesus Christ was interceding for himself. Secondly, Christ was interceding for his apostles. We see this in verses 6 through 19. This section of his prayer focuses upon the needs of his apostles. And we'll be looking at this in more detail. We're not going to read it all tonight, but I want to simply make the point that this section offers some of greatest, grandest promises and assurances found anywhere in God's Word. We could call it the keeping power of God is being prayed for on behalf of, the, of these believers. And so that they might be sustained in their salvation. It's a wonderful truth that the Lord preserves for all eternity, those who are truly his own. And the work of sanctification is the heart and the subject of the Lord's prayer. Sanctification refers to our growth in Christ, our ongoing development in the holiness of the Lord. We can be assured that every true believer will develop in some way in his spiritual life because Jesus prayed for this to happen. His will for us in our walk is spelled out here in this text. It's going to be a wonderful thing to study as we go through it in the next several weeks. Uh, Several texts in the Bible refer to the beginning of the Christian life. It's a new birth, right? We think of when you get born again, it's the new birth. There are other texts that call Christians babes in Christ, right? We're known as babes as we just get saved. And the implication is that just as we grow and mature physically, we're to grow and mature spiritually as well. I don't think that's anything new, but that's something we need to be reminded of. We need to continue to grow. So it's a specific prayer as he intercedes for himself, he intercedes for his apostles, and he intercedes for believers. 
This is verses 20 through 26. The last section focuses on praying of Jesus Christ specifically for all those who follow the apostles. That means all of us who are redeemed. It's a prayer for the unity of every believer, a unity that's grounded in the common relationship of oneness we have with Christ. The purpose of unity is not to just make us feel good. But notice it's twofold. One, it is to reflect the unity between the Father and the Son, and so it brings glory to the Godhead. And secondly, to provide a clear witness of the reality of Christ's saving work in sinners. And so that points other sinners to Christ. Now I'm afraid that too many professing Christians take lightly the prayer of Jesus Christ concerning the unity of the brethren. Especially in a local church. Now, I think it was last Sunday, or last Wednesday night, excuse me, we looked at the seven things God hates. And the last one was a sowing of discord among the brethren. And according to what our Lord prayed and what the New Testament teaches, we should never act in such a way that would cause disunity. Nor are we to tolerate those who do. So much of the witness of churches in the world today has been shattered by jealousy, by fighting, by disunity. And here's what our Lord prays. Notice it. He says, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. You see, the unity begins and continues in Jesus Christ, and without being in him, there is no unity. And so it's a very specific prayer. Christ prays for himself, he prays for his apostles, and he prays for us as believers those who have followed the apostles. Notice thirdly, it's an assuring prayer. So many of the themes of redemption that are really prevalent in God's or John's gospel uh, throughout the New Testament are found in this prayer. The theme is kind of multifaceted assurance for the people of God. No, notice it's an assurance of the Redeemer's work. You see this in verse 1, and you see it in verse 4. When Jesus spoke of the hour, and then in verse 4 where he says, Having finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now that's speaking of his redemptive work. Redemption is a very important word used in the New Testament. Offers a very clear statement of what Jesus Christ did for us. And we cannot enter into full explanation of redemption at this point, but just let me mention three components of it. Number one, the use of redemption implies that the person in need of redemption is bound by some type of slavery. It's a captivity which man cannot himself break, so that redemption represents the intervention from the outside And the person pays the price which man cannot pay. And so you have, thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ who intervened to pay the price for our redemption. It's also through the work of Jesus, the price of our redemption from slavery of sin was something that he bore on himself so that he is our substitute. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 
And then thirdly, there is the result of the act of redemption. Someone has written, in the scripture we, have, we see the price paid, the curse born, in order that those who redeem should be brought into the liberty of the sons of God. The whole point of this redemption is that sin no longer has dominion. The redeemed are saved to do the will of the master. And so Jesus' prayer has an assurance that he did indeed complete what was necessary for sinners to be declared righteous before God so that to secure all the benefits of being a child of God for those who come to faith in him. Notice also it's not only an assuring prayer in the Redeemer's work but of the redemption applied. You see this in verses 1 through 10. Redemption is not something that you simply have on paper. No, there's a reality. Uh, there's no reality uh, uh, to that. Uh, there is something of Jesus giving a testimony on behalf of the eleven before the Father. Now that that's, uh, we have to give him. Uh, there's something to that. Uh, the Father had given these men to Christ. Christ had delivered His saving word to them. They have known that all things whatsoever Thou hast given me are of Thee, and all that Jesus declared. Concerning himself, they had believed and embraced. They had come to understand that he is God come to man, the gift of the Father to satisfy his justice and save sinners. And when we speak of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we're speaking of an actual work that is applied to particular sinners. It's not applied to everyone on the face of the earth or else all would be saved. It's, simply, it's not simply a potential work in which Jesus might save sinners, his redemption is applies to those which thou gavest me out of the world. Here we see the joining of God's grace and Christ's redemptive work coming together to actually secure a people for God for all eternity. And we can find our assurance in that. Jesus Christ actually redeemed me and he secured my salvation for all eternity. What he did on the cross, cross applies to my account out of the richness of God's mercy and grace. And then thirdly, of the redeemed characterized. Find this in verse 13 through 23, and then also verse 26. Those who are truly redeemed by the Lord will manifest certain characteristics. We find these as a part of the prayer of our Lord for his own. Remember, Jesus always prays in the will of the Father, and he always receives a perfect answer to his prayers. Do we do that? Well, we, we can't be perfect, can we? We don't always pray perfectly. Uh, and we don't always pray in the will of the Father. But Jesus can. Now, these words here are not wishful thinking on the part of Christ. They serve as a manifestation of the divine will and divine work that will take place in those who are truly saved. Now, the Lord willing, we're going to be looking at each of the characteristics in detail uh, as they make up the heart and soul of our daily Christian lives. You know, so many Christ, uh, confuse Christianity with other religions. No doubt some of you have talked at length with others who have their own ideas of religion, uh, their own ideas of God. Essentially, God is whoever you feel he is, Right? No, that's not right, but that's, some, that's what some people think. God is whoever you feel he is. And while we would be stunned to hear someone say that, I'm afraid that too many professing Christians are doing essentially the same thing. 
Christianity is whatever you want it to be for you. No, that's not what the Bible teaches us. If you just want to have a name of religion or something to help you along socially or something to lean on in hard times, then call yourself a Christian. No. Many, many people lead, are led to think that. But our Lord made it clear that what should characterize all that who are truly born again. All seven of these characteristics should be a part of those of us who call ourselves Christians and profess to name the name of Christ. There needs to be joy, there needs to be holiness, there needs to be truth, mission, unity, hope, and love. And we find that here in his prayer, and we're going to be looking at that in detail. But notice then, fourthly, of the redeemed with the Redeemer. Verse 24. Now, just as John 14 tells us of a home in heaven, which Jesus is preparing, verse 24 tells us of the absolute truth that the redeemed will be with the Redeemer someday, one day. It says here, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now that's a, that's a promise of heaven. That's a promise of being with Christ someday. There are some strange ideas, I think, floating around about what goes on in heaven these days. Much of it's done in, in attempts at humor. Much of it's self-consuming. But Jesus' prayer cuts through the questions about heaven. His desire is that we might be with him to behold his glory. All of the resplendence of his divine character will be ours to see without measure in heaven. All of his goodness, all of his holiness, all of his truth, all of his purity will be very clear to us when we see him as, uh, as he is. Now, we've not looked at, at any portion of this high priestly prayer in detail tonight. We've taken a quick overview of some of the content of this prayer. And I believe it's important that we consider the wealth of truth that we see in this text and that we not just merely look at it in academic fashion. But let's approach this text each week with a consciousness that, number one, it's the very prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Number two, that it contains the clearest explanation of the will of God for our lives since Jesus prayed according to the Father's will. And number three, that we seek to worship Christ as he reveals himself to us through this prayer. And that number four, we will seek to be open and obedient to the work of the Holy Spirit who will apply the truth of this prayer to our lives. And let me leave the, with this final challenge tonight. First of all, read this chapter of God's word each week over the period of our study. As I said before, it may be 10, 12 weeks that we're going to be looking at. So read this along with your regular reading. Read John 17 every week. I just challenge you to do that. Secondly, pray for me as your preacher that I might clearly examine my own heart as I study, as I proclaim this text with authority and anointing. And then thirdly, pray for our church. 
that we might see the incredible unity of our Lord that he has given to us and then walk in it faithfully as a testimony of his grace. I think those are three things that we can really uh, take to heart tonight as we began to study John chapter 17. And I trust that uh, you'll take that challenge. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for the gospel of John, a wonderful gospel, wonderful portion of your, your word. And we come to this great chapter of the high priestly prayer. And we know, we see its uniqueness, its very specificness, and its assuredness in our hearts and lives. We pray. We pray that we'll take to the challenge that has been given tonight to read this chapter each week. Pray for the preacher. Pray for the church. That this study of John 17 will really take hold in our lives. You know, make a difference. We need your working in our hearts and lives. We need the Spirit of God doing a work in each one of us. And I pray that tonight, as we consider this, that that'll be our determination in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 481.